Good morning. According to EPA.gov, so the official website of the Environmental Protection Agency, the total generation of municipal solid waste, so garbage that was brought to a local dump, in 2018 was 292 million tons. 292 million, okay? Now, 32% of that was recycled or composted, meaning 68% was unrecyclable waste. If you were to divide that figure by our population in 2018, it'd mean that each person generated 3.3 pounds of unrecyclable waste every day. 3.3 pounds. Now, if you multiply that by 365 days, that amounts to 1,204 pounds of unrecyclable waste per person per year. Now, the average life expectancy in America right now is 78.7 years, which means that over their lifetime, an average American produces 94,902 pounds of unrecyclable waste. That's 17 pickup trucks. Now, I'm not talking truck loads, but 17 trucks themselves worth of unrecyclable waste per person during their lifetime. It's safe to say, then, that we are absolute experts at producing waste. What we need to learn, I think, is how not to produce so much waste. Of course, how not to waste our resources day to day, but more importantly, how not to waste our lives. Our lives. Now, a short disclaimer here. Um, anyone familiar with John Piper and his ministry, Desiring God, uh, may recognize some of this language. Don't waste your life, the unwasted life, things like that. I, I came to this theme, this idea, independent of Piper, uh, but I, I did want to use this title as an homage to Pastor Piper and his work with Desiring God, and so uh, you can look him up and find other resources related to this theme, but my message is going to be just a little bit distinct from that, but I did use this title uh, intentionally. Like I said, we desperately, especially as Americans, desperately need to learn how not to waste our lives. Luckily, in our case, the Apostle Paul speaks directly to this issue in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. What mode of life, <clears throat> what, what habit, what practice constitutes a truly unwasted life? So if you had to select one practice that above all else is unwasteful, what would you select? Over the course of this passage, Paul shows us what is an unwasted life. And that life, surprisingly, is not one of social activism, 
one of lucid and incisive teaching, one of impressive public achievement. No. That life, rather, is a life of worship. Worship. So this morning we're going to talk about worship. And first I'll introduce you all to the book of Ephesians as a whole, and then we'll dive into our text for this morning. But before we do either, I would love for us to pray. Would you now pray with me? Lord, we need you. We love you. We are here to encounter you and to be transformed by your presence, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as I preach, as we sing, that you, Jesus the Christ, would walk up and down this sanctuary, that you'd put your hand on our shoulder, you'd whisper into our ear, you'd convince us that you are here with us, Lord. I pray that we would bask in your glory this morning. Open us up so that we would experience you, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesus, um, you should be able to see a map behind me, good. Uh, There's a black circle there, and in the middle of that circle is the ancient city of Ephesus. This is the Mediterranean in the first century. You can also see some uh, spaghetti lines, that is the highway system of Boston, Massachusetts. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, Those are Paul's missionary journeys, at least the first two missionary journeys, which we talked about in our series, part one of our series in the book of Acts. So Ephesus, I'll just say a few words about the city. Uh, Ephesus in the first century had a population of, get this, 200,000 people. So Portland is, what, 65,000? Something like that. So Ephesus would have been like three times the size of Portland in the ancient world. Huge. And it's located in Asia, which this is kind of confusing. The larger mass, which is modern-day Turkey, was referred to as Asia Minor. Um, But to the west, that red region was an actual province in the Roman Empire. So that was the province of Asia. Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia. It had a thriving commercial uh, industry. It was a hub for various trades. Its theater, get this, theater, held 24,000 people. Its theater, where they would put on Greek tragedies and comedies and plays and so forth, 24,000 people. And the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So Ephesus was a significant city, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Now, we learn about Ephesus, at least in Acts, in chapters 18 through 20 in the book of Acts. So Paul meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, in the city of Corinth, which is in Greece today, and together they go to Ephesus. That's in Acts chapter 18. Paul then does some preaching in the local synagogue, as was his custom, and he establishes a church in Ephesus. But then he leaves. And so he leaves Aquila and Priscilla in charge at Ephesus, this huge city. And then we learn of this guy, Apollos, who shows up. 
And he's developed and supplemented in his knowledge by Aquila and Priscilla. And he's launched from Ephesus to Corinth. And then it says that Paul comes back. That's Acts 19. Paul comes back to Ephesus and spends probably two to three years there doing ministry. Then this riot happens. Again, you can read of this in Acts 19 toward the end. And so Paul has to leave. The last mention we encounter of Ephesus comes in Acts 20, a message that I I preached. It was Paul's uh, farewell address to the elders at Ephesus, where he doesn't actually go to Ephesus because he knows that he would tarry there. He knows that he would spend time there because he was so tight with them. He gives this speech from Miletus to these elders, and afterwards they're crying, they're weeping, He's falling on them, they're hugging, and they know that they'll never see each other again. So Paul then moves on to Jerusalem, and one thing after another happens, and he's imprisoned and ultimately sent to Rome. And in Rome, he's imprisoned, at least for the first time, and while there, he writes a number of letters. He's thinking back to all the churches he'd established throughout his journeys, And he thinks he might die any day. And so he's wondering, what can I say to these early Christians to encourage them, to guide them, to inspire them? And so he writes Philippians, he writes Ephesians and Colossians and some other letters. Now briefly, um, the letter to the Ephesians consists of six chapters. And you can divide it roughly into two sections, so the first three chapters and the latter three. Uh, In the first half of the letter, Paul talks about the gospel. Uh, This would be termed kind of the theological or doctrinal half of the the letter. We get this elaborate prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 1. He talks about uh, Jews and Gentiles being united in chapter 2, and just elaborates on his ministry of grace in chapter 3. In the second half of the letter, we get more practical matters, what life looks like on the ground for a Christian. So Paul talks about unity practically in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, he talks about a common life that is worthy of the gospel. What does that life look like? And that's actually where our passage falls. Lastly, in chapter 6, we get this famous discussion of the armor of God and uh, this fight against the, the, the powers of the spiritual invisible realm and the importance of prayer. But our passage falls in Paul's discussion of a common life that is worthy of the gospel. So if you haven't turned there, I haven't, uh, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians 5. We're going to be starting at verse 15. I will be reading from the ESV, and the Bibles in front of you in the pew are ESV, so you should be good to follow along. So Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15, let me just say that the first 14 verses of this chapter concern the imitation of God. Paul says, be imitators of God in verse 1, and he lists the lifestyle from which the Ephesians have been freed and talks about this new life in Christ. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that I didn't read verse 21. Uh, In the best Greek manuscripts that we have, verse 21 actually begins the next paragraph. And so I disagree with the ESV's editorial decision. Other versions will have it beginning the next section, so that is why I stopped at verse 20. In this section, Paul both asks and answers the question, What does non-wasteful living look like? What does it look like to make the best use of the time? To to live carefully, deliberately? Paul answers this question with one word. Worship. Worship. Now, the section can be broken up into roughly three points or three ideas. The first comes in verse 15 and a little in 16. Paul gives this overarching command. Look carefully then how you walk. And then he gives a reason for the command, because the days are evil. In the second point, he provides three sub-commands, which explain or clarify this overarching command. What does it mean to live carefully? What what exactly does that look like? And he does that in verses 15 through 18. Lastly, in verses 19 through 20, Paul presents two modes of life which exemplify non-wasteful living. Two modes of life which tell us exactly how it is that we can live carefully. And make the most of the present moment. You can cut the math, Eric. So let's begin then with verse 15. Paul opens this passage with an overarching command. Look carefully then how you walk. The verb for look, it's an imperative verb. And it's literally the the word you would use to say, I saw something. I see something. Vision. Look. And then we get this verb to walk. To walk. We've talked about this in Galatians, walk by the Spirit. In the Jewish imagination, life was conceived of as a journey you would take. You you would walk down a path, and the law of God, the Word of God, was considered the path or a light along the path to guide your way, to make sure that you didn't step off the road into a ditch or into danger. So to say, keep, keep your eyes open, look where you're walking, is symbolic for uh, pay attention to how you live. Paul's speaking to these Ephesians who formerly lived as Greek, you could say pagans, although that word isn't always helpful, engaging in pursuits that were wasteful, pursuits that uh, 
that were, were not meaningful and substantial. Paul is saying that as Christians, we are not to float through life on autopilot with our eyes closed. We, we are not, since Jesus is coming soon, to just not worry about how we live, but we are to pay careful attention to how it is that we live. Why? What reason does Paul give for this command? Verse 16. He says, Make the most of the present moment, restating what he just said, live carefully, because the days are evil. Because the days are evil. First, this phrase, make the most of the present moment, this is an economic term. So if, if there was a market in Ephesus, and, and Paul knew that papayas were selling at a high price, it would be prudent for him to buy up all the papayas at the market and then to sell them at a higher price, to take advantage of the, the heat of the market, right? That is the word that he uses, to, to take advantage of this, this critical moment, to capitalize on it, to maximize the opportunity. He says, because the days are evil. What does he mean by this? In his other letters, he talks about the present age or the present world being somehow controlled by the forces of evil. Jesus Christ, he sees reigning as Lord in heaven, but earth is still under the influence of the devil, the enemy, and his forces. So it doesn't just mean an evil quality, but I think it also suggests transience, uh, 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 a perishable nature. These times are, are held by the evil one, they're turning in on themselves, and so their demise is inevitable. The, the days are fading away quickly. Paul says, make the most of the present moment, capitalize on it, live carefully because time is running out. The days for you to make an impact for the gospel are dissolving, they're fading. Grasp the opportunity, seize the day, he says. Well, then he gives three sub-commands which clarify or flesh out what he means by live carefully. The first one comes in verse 15, the second half of 15. He says, live or walk not as those who are unwise, but rather as those who are wise. So that is the first sub-command he gives. Well, what do you mean, Paul? There were a lot of philosophers, intellectuals walking around at this time. Is he saying that we're to just align ourselves with Aristotle, Seneca, Plato, Philo, guys like that? The secular wisdom of the day? Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Let's move then to the second subcommand, which he gives in verse 17. He says, For this reason, looking back at the, the evil days, because the days are fading, do not become unthinking, but understand what is the will of the Lord. Some manuscripts say God, the will of 
the Lord our God. The idea is not to be mindless, not to have uh, uh, heads that are empty, so to speak, unwise, but to fill one's mind up, not necessarily with the secular wisdom of the age, but with the very thoughts of God. The interests, the, the desires, the dreams of the Lord God, fill your minds with that. That's how you live carefully. Well, the third subcommand he gives in verse 18 has probably received the most treatment of any of the others in this passage. It needs, though, to be interpreted in context. And so let's, let's try to think of it in, in, in Paul's flow of thought here, verse 18. How do you live carefully? Well, don't be unwise, but be wise. Don't be mindless, but fill your minds with God's thoughts. And do not be intoxicated with alcohol, but be filled with God's Spirit. To be drunk with wine here is in parallel with being unwise and being mindless or foolish. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which there is debauchery, is the word in the ESV, which doesn't really mean much for us today. This is the opposite of the word salvation, actually, which in the ancient world, salvation, that word means preservation, health, wholeness. The best way to think of this, I think, is with produce today. You, you, you have vegetables that are loaded with preservatives that last, and then others that spoil. That's kind of the idea. So one, you have to throw in the garbage and waste because it's spoiled, and the other, it lasts. It's not the best analogy because preservatives are not healthy per se, but that is a good way to think about what, what he's talking about. With the prodigal son, you think of this, this life that the younger son lived, it was wasteful. It was, it was dissipating, it was spoiling almost. The idea is that the the practices, the words, the, the lifestyle that emerges from drunkenness is wasteful. What the Ephesians would have said when they were intoxicated with alcohol was not the kind of thing you'd want to record and read later. Think about a, a, a keg party, a, a frat party in college. The, the behaviors that emerge from drunkenness are our wasteful behaviors. It's no accident that we call being drunk being wasted. Wasted. I think the reason Paul resists this behavior, why he prohibits drunkenness, is not something inherent in alcohol, but it's, it's the behaviors that emerge from it. A wasteful form of life, one that is not taking advantage of the present moment, the days that are fading. Rather than being drunk with wine, Paul says, be filled with, be possessed by the Holy Spirit. The implication is that the practices, the words, the deeds that emerge from a spirit-drunk life are 
unwasteful, fundamentally unwasteful. And he provides for us two examples, two modes of life that emerge from being full of God's Spirit. In verse 19, we see the first one. He says, this is how you make the most of the present day, the days that are fast fading. This is how you carpe diem and seize the day. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and plucking your heartstrings to the Lord. That is literally the idea. How do we make the most of the present moment? We sing songs together. We praise God through music together. That's what Paul says. He doesn't say to the Ephesians, go out there and and change society right now. Don't sleep until every injustice is corrected. Go, Go build the most beautiful, architecturally ornate churches and steeples for me. No, he says, praise me. Worship. This is striking, friends. Especially to those of us who tend toward the left brain, think in a more linear fashion, straightforward. He's talking about music, art, poetry, beauty, being enwrapped by this experience of praise. Well, the second related practice that emerges from a spirit-filled life is the practice of prayer, praise and prayer. It says, give thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father. Praise and prayer. And this, this isn't intercessory supplication type prayer where you're asking God for things. It's, it's saying thank you to God for what he's given. Paul says that is fundamentally productive. To sing together and to thank God together is unwasteful living. That's how we make the most of the present day, this opportunity. Praise and prayer. Worship. Worship is the essential and central act of the Christian. That's Eugene Peterson. He goes on, when we worship, it doesn't look like we are doing much, and we aren't. Rather, we are looking at what God is doing, and we're orienting our lives to it. In the press of world events, he says, which oscillate between the glamour of celebrities and the violence of terrorists, worship seems an absurdity. Surely it's a waste of good energy to gather to sing songs, hear a sermon, and enjoy fellowship. But nothing, nothing that we do has more effect in heaven or on earth than worship. Nothing, I'll say it again, nothing that we do has more of an effect than worship. 
Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Make the most of the present time. And how does he suggest that we do this? What behaviors does he prescribe for us? Again, fervent social activism, incisive, passionate teaching, impressive achievements out in public? No. Worship. Worship. Friends, when we gather together and sing songs with one another to God, thanking Him for what He's given, although it may not seem it, it's the most worthwhile use of our time. It is. Peterson writes, God's action, not the world's action, is what we should want to be involved in. When we worship, we allow our lives to be reoriented by God. We worship because God is worth it. It's a quote from one of our former leaders, Kim Brown. But in the act of worship, we can't help but be utterly transformed. We don't worship in order to get transformed. We we worship because God is worth it. But when we worship, when we truly worship, it utterly changes the course of our life. Worship is always worth it. It's never wasteful. When we gather like this, we allow God and His movements, His interests, His dreams to grip us, possess us, and inspire us. Mike often says before a meeting, let's, let's invite God to this meeting. We get so busy thinking about what we are to do, our course of action, our to-do lists, that we forget to let God reorient us. That's what worship does. Worship is never wasteful. An unwasted life is a life of worship. This morning, friends, I implore you, make your life a life of worship. I promise you, it'll be worth it. Let's pray. We need your help, Lord. We are so needy. Oh, we are. And I am overwhelmed by your grace and mercy in loving us in our need. Would you please open us up, Lord, at least on these Sunday mornings, to experience your life-giving presence, to give you all the praise that you deserve, Lord, but I pray that you would reorient our lives, point us in your direction, beckon us to the work that you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen.